Happy Monday, April 25th, 2022. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We hope you had a good weekend. We hope you were able to uh, brave the winds. And we hope, most importantly, none of you were threatened by wildfires this weekend. We encourage if you hadn't had a listen, go back to our most recent episode. It's a special all about wildfires in New Mexico, why the season's starting earlier, why it's getting worse, and what can be done about it. And encourage you to check out our website for a great list of resources on all things wildfire. Uh, Going to bring a little something special to you in this episode as well, since the wildfire that special, the longest season, was our show on New Mexico PBS on Friday night. But earlier in the week, we had a terrific Facebook Live that we want to bring to you here with host Gene Grant. We've been working on this one for a while. There is a new exhibit at the Albuquerque Museum uh, called Facing the Sun, and it's all about the history of African-American homesteading in New Mexico. Just a fascinating history. Chances are some of you have heard about Blackdom, an encampment down in southern New Mexico that was entirely African-American, but that is tip of the iceberg, including an encampment here on the east side of Albuquerque. And so all of this history laid out in this fantastic uh, exhibit at the Albuquerque Museum. So we've got some great folks to talk about that history, uh, the families that were behind it, where that land, a lot of it is today in terms of ownership as well as how they integrated this into a multimedia experience at the Albuquerque Museum. So lots to dive into. Let's get right to it now with host Gene Grant. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Hey, folks, welcome to a very special Facebook Live, kind of a personal one for me. I'm very excited to bring a group here that's involved with I have a wonderful exhibit at our wonderful museum, the Albuquerque Museum, Facing the Rising Sun. It's about African-American homesteading history here in our state. It's fascinating. It's thought-provoking. It's a lot of things. And we've got a great group here to talk about it. Oh, by the way, it's going to be at the museum through June. And we'll talk about that as well. So I want to welcome Rita Powdrell. For sure, Rita's the driving force. She's the uh, program director of the project. Uh, Facing the Rising Sun, the journey of African-American homesteaders in the state of New Mexico. We welcome Rita for sure. Marilyn Hills with us. Marilyn's family, uh, is a th- she's a third generation homesteader. Her fam, uh, her, her granddads and uh, actually hosted at 640 acres here. We'll talk about the details of that. And that number, that's 640, you're going to hear that a lot mentioned here. There's some history in that uh, numeral and others as well. We also welcome Eric uh, Yakley, Eric is responsible for the technology side of the exhibit, which is really interesting in the research and the pictures that really tell the story of how uh, this all came to be. It's just absolutely fascinating to see the amount of photographs that are, are part of the exhibit really helps tell the tale. We also welcome Thomas Williams. Thomas is responsible for the development of a documentary uh, about the oral history of the uh, story of our coming to New Mexico to homestead. It's a fascinating documentary. I haven't watched the whole thing. It's an hour 45 and it, it worth every minute of it. And uh, we want to talk about that as well. So uh, Thomas, thank you. And welcome to all of you. Rita, first of all, let me start with you. You have been 
working this project for as long as I've known you actually <laughs> for quite a long time now. And here it is, uh, the fruits of your labor, literally, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to be flip here when I talk about fruits of labor, this whole story is about the fruits of labor, <laughs> to the honest truth. Tell yeah. us about how did we come here? What were the circumstances and how did we end up being in the three places that ended up being the main homesteading areas here in, here in New Mexico? Well, um, to begin with, uh, the history of the nation, it was a time of upheaval. The Civil War uh, was going on, had ended, and um, people were migrating, and they were mi so it was a time of mass migration, and people were migrating because um, laws were coming in. So in the South, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was appealed, was, was uh, determined to be unconstitutional. And that act actually allowed for um, all groups to be in public facilities. And once it was decided it was unconstitutional, uh, Jim Crow came in. So in 1883, when that law was made unconstitutional in the Southern states, Jim Crow came in with a vengeance. And so the migration of African-Americans one of the reasons for migration was the oppressiveness of these laws and the cruelty and the types of things that were happening as the South tried to re-enslave its African-American population. And the migration went north quite a bit, but people often forget that people came west and not north. And one of the reasons the West was popular was the 1862 Homestead Act. Mm -hmm. And that act allowed people to homestead 160 acres as long as they were 21 years of age, had never uh, picked up arms against the United States, were a citizen of the country, which, but that was kind of flexible and only had to pay a minimal fee do basic improvements over a five-year period, and then they would get a patent to the land. So I think coming out of enslavement and being property, the idea of owning property and finding sanctuary from the oppressiveness of the South. And then you also had the Buffalo soldiers who were already in the West. And mm -hmm. so many of them were in the state of New Mexico and these opportunities to own land um, caused them to stay. And then during that period, sometimes people forget there was an epidemic of tuberculosis. So health, also became an issue that brought African-Americans uh, to the Southwest. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And, and what's the time period when we first started coming in? I don't wanna say in numbers because it was very much individual decisions, but is there a time period we know that the first families were here from the South? 
Well, you, it kind of starts around, so with the Buffalo Soldiers, it's, you know, kind of earlier, uh, and then they start leaving the forts in the, like, around 1880 in, in that time frame and start mm -hmm. homesteading in New Mexico. Your families coming out of the South, I would say, are coming out, again, in the late 1800s, so the Boyer family is coming uh, out of Georgia, and his vision was to start a African-American town, sovereign town for African-Americans, and he had heard of the Homestead Act. So he's coming out of Georgia in about uh, the late 1800s, you know, and this is like his fourth attempt at starting a sovereign African-American town. And so he just saw opportunities. So between, I would say the late 1800s and maybe about 1925 or so, you had quite a bit of migration to New Mexico because of the ability to own land. That's fascinating. I want to bring Marilyn in a quick second. That, that Boyer story is so fascinating that he walked for nine months with a student from Georgia to get to New Mexico to make this happen. It's just, it's the most amazing thing. And Marilyn, when you look at your own family history, I, I've just got to imagine, you know, when you, when you, someone's got to want something bad enough to do it, you know, <laughs> like this, tell, you know, your family history, tell about, tell us about yours. How did your great granddad come here and what were the circumstances? Well, um, part of it is want and part of it is uh, preservation right. because when they were in Texas, they were threatened. The family was threatened. Uh, the Redcoats had threatened to burn their house down. Oh, wow. And a very nice neighbor uh, gave my grandfather and his mother a horse and buggy. So they used that to travel to Oklahoma hoping that in Oklahoma, things would be better, mm -hmm. hoping that the family would be safer. However, once they were there, they encountered the same types of things, uh, which is, you know, people wanna be in a place where they're safe, where their family is safe. That's just like a simple thing, uh, not even the American dream, but really uh, a, a constitutional issue, wanting to be safe and, and have liberty. So when that did not happen, they then migrated to New Mexico with some other families, putting their uh, possessions on a train and coming west. Their goal was to go to California. Ah. However, when my grandfather, uh, when they got to New Mexico, they saw the Rio Grande River. And I always tell people it had to be spring or summer because uh, <laughs> otherwise there would not have been green. <laughs> so, so it had to be during that time frame. And during those times, the river, there was a lot of water in the Rio Grande River. Even when I was young, there was a lot of water in the Rio Grande River. And being a farmer, he looked and saw that this could be something uh, that he could raise his family, he could farm, he could uh, plant all kinds of crops, and he knew how to do that. Mm -hmm. So that got him to New Mexico. Interesting. Now, where did where did he settle uh, specifically? Initially, he was in uh, the Mesilla Park area. Right. Mesilla, old Mesilla, really. Interesting. Rita, let me bounce to you. I'll, I'll bring the fellows in in a quick second. But let me bounce back to you since we're on that part of uh, one of the three 
enclaves. How big did it get? How, how thriving was it? What was commerce like? What was day-to-day -day life like? That's the part that's so interesting to me. Well, what is interesting about homesteading in the southern part of the state is most of the people who homesteaded, homesteaded under the uh, 1916 stock raising homestead, which was specific to the West. Right. So they were trying to get people to the West because there were vast amounts of land. And so you could homestead uh, 640 acres of land. So... Um, so imagine having 640 acres of land and you had about uh, during this time frame, the, so around 1920, right in there, you had about almost 40 African-American families that homesteaded in the Las Cruces area in these 640 acres. And so um, imagining that, and imagining, like Marilyn said, her family's coming out of Texas or trying to get away from the oppression and the threats. And New Mexico, when they get here, uh, feels like, you know, uh, that may, it may be the price, but the year her father was born in 1925, which is also when her grandfather is doing the homestead, New Mexico passes a law that segregates the schools. So all of a sudden, uh, in the midst of um, leaving somewhere where there were these types of laws, New Mexico starts to pick them up. And I think what's interesting about the Las Cruces area is because people are seeking um, sanctuary, like uh, Marilyn said, and they're, they're seeking self-determination, and they have visions now that they, you know, that they own land. Uh, I think because of that, even though people were, you know, these 640 acres apart, you start to have a community under a community. Mm -hmm. So African-Americans, you know, all the things that you do with community, you know, um, you're, you're going to have churches, you know, you're going to have social organizations that hold people, you know, together, you're going to, I mean, grocery stores, you're going to have cemeteries. So actually in Las Cruces, uh, it's not called a black town, but underneath the dominant community, you have an African-American self-sustaining community, and they are self-sustaining because they have the ability to own land. And so they have ownership of everything. So it makes that part of the country really fascinating and gives, I think, the homesteaders the strength to fight off the types of discriminations they had that were uh, kind of trying to prevent them from getting the patents to these lands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense. You know, and by the way, as a point of uh, clarity here, we're talking about right now Vado, which is south of Las Cruces. And Vado, at one point, you make clear in the exhibit, was it was just an entirely black town. I, mean, I think that would shock most people that that actually existed here in New Mexico. And then swinging east, of course, to uh, probably our most, you know, infamous enclave is Blackdom, New Mexico. And uh, Rita, can, can you talk a bit about Blackdom and how Blackdom came to be 
because I think there's a lot of confusion about, you know, Vado versus Blackdom versus what we're going to cover in a second, which is Albuquerque and north of Albuquerque uh, and the northern part of the, of the state of New Mexico as well. But but how did Blackdom come to be? That's the most infamous. Well, for can I go back a minute? Because you, you were saying that we were talking about Vado, but I was actually talking about Las Cruces. Ah, gotcha. Las Cruces also has a African-American community that exists in the dominant community. Vado becomes a dominant city of African-Americans. And Blackdom, so Blackdom is close to the amount of homesteaders that uh, Vado has. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you've got about 40 families that... Uh, um, migrate uh, to um, Blackdom in the early 1900s. They actually advertised in the Crisis Magazine, uh, which is a magazine of the NAACP. Uh, you know, come to this place and you you will own your own land. You you know you will be sovereign. You can be self determined. You will have sanctuary. And Frank. Boyer was behind that vision. So he and his family come in the early 1900s. He has, oh, I mean, 11 or 12 kids and his children homestead. And um, the thing about homesteading uh, was the economic base because you did have to improve the land. And so they needed economic foundation and the banks of course weren't giving it uh, to African-Americans, which meant um, almost all your homesteaders in Blackdom and Las Cruces and worked full-time jobs right. in like Roswell or Dexter uh, while they still had to improve the homestead. And they did incorporate Blackdom in I think 1911, they were trying to make a uh, all black town and they did have their own church, their own po post office, their own schools, uh, you know, their own agriculture. But in the mid uh, 1920s, and they give a lot of different reasons. One was the, the water, um, another was an insect infestation, but for whatever reasons it became um, not viable to work the land and most of the homesteaders left Blackdom either going to Vado or going into uh, Roswell. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting, I'm looking at the actual advertisement you, you mentioned a second ago, that's at the exhibit. And uh, I'm, I'm gonna bring in Eric here. Eric, if you can unmute, I wanna uh, talk to you about this. It's so interesting to see historical documents, guys, because big letters wanted 500 Negro families, farmers <laughs> preferred, in parentheses, I always thought that was pretty cute, <laughs> to settle on free government lands in Chavez County, New Mexico. Blackdom is a Negro colony, fertile soil, ideal climate, no, quote, Jim Crow laws. And Jim Crow is in, in quotation marks. Interesting. For, for information, write Harold Coleman, Blackdom, New Mexico. Uh, no zip code needed, not in those days, that's for sure. And Eric, interestingly, and, and Thomas, I want to get you in on this too. When you found these, you know, finding these kind of documents, how, you know, adding this to an exhibit, how difficult was it to find? And then, of course, your personal journey, finding them and adding them to the exhibit and, and getting them done in a technology way as well. It's interesting. Tell us about it. And yeah, our team was uh, largely an enabler, right? So we really leaned on Rita and, and, and family members for a lot of those documents, a lot of that, just a real wealth of, um, you know, photographs from the, from the past and uh, to help, help tell the story, right? And so 
Uh, mm -hmm. Part of the exhibit is a, a touchscreen interactive, interactive, so it's really a collection viewer, right? So we can pack quite a bit of information into that and you don't have to, you know, walk around the room and, and read everything on the wall, for example. So the, um, but, you know, combination of that overview and timeline, uh, the individual family stories, and then the story of the lands. And that was all, again, <clears throat> driven by, by Rita's vision and, um, you know, of what this exhibit, uh, the story that it would tell. So, um, yeah, it was very, uh, it was great to partner with with Rita on the on the layout of these, how they would be most accessible, how we could kind of easily navigate through this large collection of documents, and then working on the captioning. I had the honor of working with with Marilyn, specifically with her family, and kind of talking through all the captions there, and and learning you know a great deal about their family history. So, really unique opportunity for me to, um, you know, I knew almost nothing about. Um, homesteading in New Mexico period, much less the uh, African-American experience with homesteading. So really um, fantastic opportunity. So I don't know if that answers your question a little bit there, Gene, but the, uh, yeah, great. Yeah. I'm happy for you, for the for you having the experience. I mean, yep. you know, for a lot, like a lot of folks, we've been joking, this is brand new for everybody. Truly. Uh, right. Outside of, you know, black people here, but you know what I'm saying? It's just, mm, it's right. brand new. Marilyn, let me, uh, Thomas, hang on a quick sec. Let me bounce to you, Marilyn, for a quick sec. Uh, Rita mentioned something interesting that I, I wanted to kind of get in as well. Did your granddad have to uh, go work for somebody else full time while he was at the same time homesteading his land as well? Absolutely. And in fact, um, he he lived in in Olmosia, Las Cruces, but the homestead is way out of town. I mean, it's just ah. remarkable. Um, the whole situation when someone from the government came and showed them this land. Most people would have said, you've got to be kidding me, because not only is uh, it was six miles uh, east of Las Cruces and then about six miles north of Highway 70, middle of nowhere, yeah. desert. In fact, it's still pretty much desert. And so I can't even imagine going up there in those times in a horse and buggy traveling to the middle of nowhere. Right. But this is where they had that. That's where the land was. So my grandfather had to live there part of the year with the family, and then they would move in town. He worked for farmers. And so that was how he maintained, because he was, he was so good at farming that uh, one individual said, if I buy land, will you farm it? And I'll give you a large percentage of that. So that is how he maintained that. And uh, you know, going back and forth between the farm work and going to the homestead. And it was, I mean, it long days, four o'clock in the morning to probably nine at night. It was something that talking about a work ethic and 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 desire and determination, clearly. You had to have that because most people would have said, Oh, I don't think so. I am not gonna stay up there in that desolate area. There's nothing up there. I'm just gonna stay here and do my own thing here in town. Mm -hmm. yeah. How's how important is it? Marilyn, for you to, and the Hill family to keep the property in the family? Has it reached a whole other situation where it's just critical at this point? Well, I think what has happened is that um, and my grandfather, not only was he a, a visionary uh, and a very spiritual man, he was a very generous man in the community. Uh, he did a lot of things in the community. He loved kids. He had 12 of them. And so he also did things for a lot of the kids. Now, and what he did for his children, he gave them, he gave all of his kids land, which was a remarkable thing to do. So every one of his kids had a parcel of land. 
Some of them still have it. My father then has deeded um, most of his land to my me and my siblings, so we still have it. Um, it's way out there, so the value is um, not something you'd want to sell at this point. We have no desire at this point to sell it, so we're just holding it until, mm -hmm. until. We don't even have an until when. So we like having it in the family, and it's there. A lot of people then sold to other people to do whatever. Right. And I think one of the other remarkable things about my grandfather is that he had the land way up in there. It's called Section 11. It's really the middle of nowhere. But he had an opportunity to buy land in what's called Section 14, which is right at Highway 70. Mm -hmm. And it, it just blows my mind that he did that and bought land that has so much more value. Mm -hmm. If you've ever driven from Las Cruces to Alamogordo now, Right. There are every rest fast food restaurant you can imagine. There's a, a super Walmart. All of these things are up and down the corridor of Highway 70. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, the 30s and 40s. And he had this vision that it would be something at some point in time. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 oof, I love it. That's, that's a great story. <laughs> and, and the fact that it is complicated for families, whether to sell, hold, all that kind of a thing. It's, it's a very individual uh, decision. Let's get Thomas in here. Sorry, Thomas, I, I meant to swing you in here just a few minutes ago. And got to give you some shine, son, because we are documentary and, you know, friendly up in here at PBS. So we love you already. So I have to tip my hat to you. I have not watched the whole thing. I think it's thrilling to have this just documented. Tell us your approach going in as an artist. What did you want to do here? And um, we'll, we'll talk about what to do later. But for right now, what was what was your goal with the documentary? The biggest thing was allowing the family members to tell their story and, you know, um, put out what they wanted to be put out there as opposed to um, taking bits and pieces of their story and telling it ourselves. We wanted to make sure that the families were able to tell their story um, and basically put what they want out there because, you know, lots of times um, I come from a news background, you know, you interview somebody and they they watch it on TV and then they're like, that's not what I said, you know, it's, <laughs> we take bits and pieces of the sound bites and you turn it into a story, but we really wanted to um, let, the, let the, the people that we interviewed tell this story so that what, what really happened was put out there as opposed to our interpretation of what happened. Mm -hmm. Which happens, which absolutely happens. And I, I'm going to imagine you didn't have much trouble getting what you needed to get as a, for a documentary. An hour and 45, I was chilling with Rita. That's a long documentary, but it has to be long. It's appropriately long. In fact, the word long doesn't even apply here. Because when you're telling a story from ground zero, that's a huge challenge. I got to imagine it was intimidating at some level. Yeah, well, because most of that um, interviews, they averaged around two hours. So, you know, every family that we interviewed. Sometimes it was multiple people. So um, yeah, that was just a lot of footage that we had to comb through and just making sure that we picked the, the, the stuff that um, would tell the story the best, but at the same time, finding what, the, what not to use or what to use and mm -hmm. feeling like, okay, we got to make sure we give this family's story justice, but at the same time, it's pushing the documentary um, total runtime further. But, you know, it's just, yeah, that was a challenge. Huge challenge, I could imagine. 
Is there, was there any one particular story that grabbed you more than others? I know it's a bit of an unfair question, but there were so many interesting stories of the bit I got to see at the Albuquerque Museum. Did any one grab you particularly? Um, all of them, all of them did, but um, I guess maybe the bottle story um, had a special place in my heart. Um, 19, it was either 19 or maybe 20 years ago, I interviewed Bobby um, when I was a student at New Mexico State. Oh, I was wow. doing a documentary for the PBS station there. Nice. And did the documentary on bottoms, and so almost twenty years later, I'm interviewing her again, and the um, the same intensity and emotion that she had the first time around, she brought it um, almost twenty years later. So just to to see that full circle, and just to um, see that her story didn't change; it's the same. You know, it was it, that that meant a lot to me to see that. I'm I'm happy for it. That's tremendous. Hey, Rita, before we forget, we've got to talk about a very important part of our migration, which is the East End Edition here in Albuquerque. Um, a lot of folks, again, this is a big mystery for a lot of folks here, and there's been a big fight for a lot of years to get it set aside as a, a historical area that has not worked out so far. Tell us, where, where was the East End Edition uh, located, and, and how did it come to be a, a place for us to, to get a foothold here in Albuquerque? Well, it was actually on... Um the Lomas, Wyoming uh, area of um, Albuquerque and kind of going back to what Marilyn was talking about, what is so amazing about the stories is the thread of vision that people had in these early times. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Uh, James Lewis homesteaded under the 1862 home. He homesteaded 160 acres. He came here for his health. He started two tuberculosis clinics, the People's uh, Sanatorium and Booker T. Washington Sanatorium tuberculosis clinics, but he bought this land and he had a vision because Wyoming and Lomas there was nothing out there but dirt, you know, there no streets, nothing paved, but he had a vision and he, in 1938, he plots it out uh, with a group called the Fraternal Aid Society, which actually pushed African Americans to homestead land. So in 1938, he plots out and gives to Bernalito County this 160 acres with homes and parks and a community center and, and, and calls it the East End Edition. And from 1938, the land moves, it changed hands. So Dr. Lewis passes away and it goes to Henry Outley and Henry Outley, it goes to Virginia Ballou. And that's an interesting story because Virginia Ballou was the secretary of the Fraternal Aid Society. And so she listened as a young woman, 16, 17 years old, to all their dreams of what they wanted to do with this land. So when she inherits the land, she inherits it for a dollar in 1946. And in 1948, she takes the plans that they had done and says, we're going to do this. We're going to take this land that looks like nothing and we're going to put homes out here. And she, she can't get a contractor in New Mexico or Texas. She goes to, has to go to Arizona. 
and she hires an African-American homesteader, I mean homesteader, African-American contractor, and they build 22 homes for African-Americans. She has to sell off parts of the land to get the money. Uh, she's an entrepreneur herself. She already has a restaurant that she uses for some of the financing. And in 1950, she has the grand opening with three models. You know, she's competing with Del Bellama and other big time uh, home places, but she, she does it. And uh, uh, I think Roy Palmer was the first person that purchases a home for her from them and the East End edition. And if you listen to the young people that live there and were brought up there, they were like, there, like Marilyn said, there was nothing there, <laughs> you know, nothing but coyotes, dirt road, you know, and then having to sustain themselves, you know, a young African-American community. And of course, the other thread that runs through these stories is church. And mm -hmm. so church becomes one of the ways that the young people and the families in the East End Edition um, stay connected to um, the uh, African-American community. Mm -hmm. And it is um, a viable and interesting community. And we've tried several times to have it part of the historic pr uh, preservation because now car dealerships are kind of moving in, buying the homes, but it's such a vital part of the history mm -hmm. of Albuquerque. We'd like to see that happen. Yeah. I don't blame you. You know, looking at the map here from that's on the wall at the exhibit, by the way, uh, as Rita mentioned it from the West end of it was Pennsylvania. The East end of it was Wyoming and then Lomas to the South and constitution to the North. What's interesting, Snow, Heart, Snow uh, Heights Park is there. A lot of folks know that park, but they would never imagine that was part of a, a black enclave <laughs> originally. That actually kind of makes me laugh a little bit. It's actually kind of funny. Rita, also, we had developed strongholds in northern New Mexico that folks might be uh, surprised about as well. Tell us about that, if you would. And, and it's not part of the exhibit, but it's an important part of our. No, we couldn't. Uh, we didn't have time to get Raton in, but Raton was a place that African Americans migrated to and homesteaded, and they had a independent African American community there. They had uh, three churches and. Okay and stores and social organizations and did a lot of homesteading in that part of the state. And you just have to remember that is also the time period of the railroad and the railroad going through and through the West. And so many African-Americans came here with the railroad, the opportunity to work on the railroad and then be, were introduced to the opportunity of, of, of homesteading and owning, and owning land. And also mining was in Raton. Okay. So you had the mining industry and you had the railroad. And so many African-Americans, you know, went there for those opportunities and then also uh, were able to own land. And mm -hmm. so ownership is the other thread, is that African-Americans owned their land and they owned, you know, the boarding houses and all the businesses, you know, all the real estate businesses that they went into. So. It's really a great story. And I want to encourage everyone who's 
here in New Mexico or visiting or wherever to get there, the Albuquerque Museum to see the exhibit. I, I, it's just so, again, so thought provoking. You know, when you walk in, again, for me as an ex-builder, to see someone's toolbox or level or, or divining rod to find water even, which you'll see, uh, which worked by the way, <laughs> which I, I think is wonderful. Uh, it, really, it really puts you in a very thoughtful place about New Mexico. Our story in the West, it's layered, it's interesting, it's inspiring, it's a whole lot of things. And I think this exhibit finally gets uh, above the eye lines, so to speak, so folks can really kind of see this in, in total in New Mexico, even though, as you mentioned, Rita, you know, you couldn't get in everything, but uh, we'll see what happens down the road. There might be more work for Thomas down the road and for Eric uh, to dig up these kind of things in northern New Mexico. And Marilyn, thank you so much for sharing your family story as well. It's fascinating. Is there a way folks can read about your family history, particularly? Is there anything we could you could point us towards? Well, I actually have a, um, have a some writings that I'm doing, and I'm also uh -huh. working on some other things. So okay. I uh, had a story in in um, in a book that was published by my sorority. The names are different because they wanted to protect the innocent, but part of the story is there, but it had to be. Uh, within an anthology. So it's very, very condensed. So I do have that, but I'm working on some things. And, you know, I just want to say, uh, Rita, I'm so proud of the vision that she had. And Thomas, it was so much fun working with him and taking pictures and talking. And, uh, you know, he went out with us in the middle of nowhere, taking pictures, and he captured, he captured things so well. I'm so proud. And, yep. and Eric, when I when I first saw the, ex well, even when we went to your office and saw what you were planning and then the exhibit, I'm just amazed. You all are so talented. I'm just so proud to be a part of this project. I'm just, I'm just thrilled. Thank you all so much. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Marilyn. I'm so glad that it's, it's, it's a professional approach all the way around. It's just, it's very befitting of us, of New Mexico, of the museum. So all of you, Thomas, Eric, Marilyn, and of course, Rita Padrell and others who put this on. Thank you so much. And keep us informed here at New Mexico PBS. If there are new wrinkles to come, we would like to be able to be involved with that. Marilyn, with your story as well, if there's any help we can be on that end of uh, things when you get through you know, writing everything, we'd love to be, uh, help share that story. Uh, Thomas, if there's a, a version, a, a new version of the documentary at some point coming, we'd love to help you out on that. Uh, Eric, technology-wise, if there's anything we'd love to work with you on that as well. I mean, a point's been proven uh, for sure. So let's hope this is the launch to something more out there for all of us and letting folks know across the country our story here in New Mexico. So thank you all again. We really appreciate your taking the time with us for this Facebook Live. Folks, we will see you Friday night at seven o'clock uh, um, for a very special show uh, concentrating on wildfires here in New Mexico with our uh, good friend and colleague, Laura Paskus. Uh, we're not gonna have a panel this week. It's just gonna be about wildfires. So we want you to tune in for that as well. So until next time, we'll see you and be sure to, oh, by the way, Rita, when is the last day for the exhibit at the museum? I didn't quite so mention I, that. It's through July 10th. July 10th, that's important to know. Yeah, the Albuquerque Museum through July 10th, yes. Absolutely, <laughs> glad we got that in. So till next time, folks, thank you to the panel. Thank you all very much. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you.
that exhibit at the Albuquerque Museum, again, Facing the Sun, and it will be up and available for you to go see in person through July 10th. A little bit of time left, but not a lot, so make sure you get out there and see it in person. Also encourage you, if you don't already, to follow uh, our other show here at New Mexico PBS called Caloris. Uh, they also did a segment on this recently, and uh, a lot more about the documentary you heard mentioned there. Uh, just fascinating oral histories of this homesteading in New Mexico, part of what makes us such a special and unique place. So we hope you enjoyed that conversation. We're hard at work on much more for you this week on the show. As always, we encourage you to follow us on social media, reach out to us, start up a dialogue. You can do that on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We absolutely love to hear from you and want to know what you want to hear in an upcoming episode. So with that, we'll leave it here. But thanks to the entire New Mexico and Focus team. Thank you for listening. I am Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy.